I'm back. Is it working? Cool. We have a new recording system that we're doing today. All right. Um, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 7. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 7, I'll read it through and then we'll pray. In you do I take refuge, a Shagayan of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save, you, save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me, pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, O Most High. These are God's words. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that as I speak, your words go out. That is the Holy Spirit speaking. That is not me. That Christ increase, that I decrease. Father, let this truth be made known. Help us to understand it and to know who you are better. In Jesus' name, amen. I think it's safe to say that we're all familiar with court cases or the courtroom environment. Some of us might have been alive long enough to remember a case involving a certain glove. If the glove fits, you must acquit. acquit. <laughs> said, well, some of us might not be old enough to know for that case. Talking about O.J. Simpson. But we have Judge Judy who, I don't know if she's still on TV, Judge Joe Brown, if he's still on TV, retired, retired. 
But even our own Judge Joe Caprio. Mm-hmm. We are, we know, we're a very legally, uh, litigiously aware society. We know how the courtroom goes. We know what it's about. What is the purpose of a court hearing? Justice. Sarah said that very epically. Uh, justice. Yeah. To discern innocent and guilt, innocence or guilt. To pronounce judgment. To uphold justice. This is the purpose of our legal system. It doesn't always work that way. It's not always perfect. Corruption of officials or systems. Imperfection and bias within individual people. Prosecutors, defense attorneys, juries, witnesses, human error. These all contribute to injustice. And that's just happenstantial, right? That's passive injustice. We also know that there is active injustice in the world. We all know that the world is broken. With it, our understanding and execution of justice is broken. In 1971... In Detroit, a man named Richard Phillips was wrongfully identified, arrested, and sent to prison for armed robbery. He was sentenced with up to 23 years in prison for $10 stolen from a convenience store. A year later, while serving this prison sentence, he was falsely implicated in a murder was found guilty, and was sentenced with an extension to life without parole. Phillips was innocent. He had had, during his prison sentence, multiple opportunities to reduce his sentence if he would just plead guilty and provide a confession. But he refused to admit to a crime that he didn't commit. Phillips would be exonerated, but he would spend almost 48 years in prison under false accusations, false convictions. It's the longest wrongful conviction sentence in our country's history. Phillips' case is an example of what can happen when justice fails. In this psalm, We will see what true justice looks like and where we find it. David has structured this psalm like a court case. He's praying to God as his own defense attorney, calling for justice. As we work through this passage, we're going to see how to respond to injustice. If you're taking notes, these are my three headings. I didn't have slides this morning, I apologize. We're going to see how to respond to injustice. We're going to see justice through promise, God's justice through promise made, and we're going to see God's justice through promise kept. How to respond to injustice, God's justice through promise made, and God's justice through promise kept. Okay, how to respond to injustice. In verse 1, we see David planting his flag. He says, O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. 
David is leaving no room for error when it comes to understanding what he's trying to say and where his confidence is coming from. David's using God's self-declared formal name here. When we see in Scripture, Lord, in all caps, that is the specific name that, the, that God gave to Moses as his formal covenantal name that we now pronounce Yahweh or Jehovah. It's the name that God told Moses at the burning bush. And it's the name that God told Moses on the mountain when God passed by, passed by him and let Moses see his glory. David is using God's formal name and personalizing it. He says, O Lord, O Jehovah, my God. Basically what he's saying is, you, the I am, the ever-present, in a sense, the real one, reality itself, you are mine. O Lord, my God. And this is an example of, of the way that we are able to relate to God. We also, we've all seen Aladdin, the phenomenal cosmic power. I'm not going to try to do Robin Williams, but that's, that's the dynamic. That's a dim dynamic of what we have with God. The ultimate is personal with us. And why is David addressing him in this psalm? What is the purpose of this psalm? He's asking for salvation and deliverance. Now, the way it works in my house, I don't go to my kids for financial assistance or if the roof needs to be repaired, right? Because those problems are bigger than they are. We don't ask for help from people who don't have the ability to help. David is asking God for help because God is bigger than the problem. David is experiencing persecution. He's experiencing injustice. He has been slandered. Slandered to the point that he's fearing for his life, fearing for his reputation, fearing for his legacy. David uses very strong graphic language. He's freaking out because of the words of Cush. Who is Cush? Glad you asked. No idea. We don't know anything about him outside of this reference, but it doesn't really matter because the point is, is that Cush's words, whoever he is, has brought David to fear for his life. He says his pursuers are like a lion ready to tear him to pieces. And what do we see David doing? Is he mustering an army? Is he cashing out his investment portfolio? Is he seeking new identity? Is he developing a counter campaign to discredit his slanderers? No, he's praying. He's taking the situation. He's taking his response. He's processing through what's happening in God's presence, in front of God and with God. He's filtering his experience 
through the truths that he knows through God and about God. Now I want to pause here because there's something really important that's being implied in these first two verses. As a believer, we will all experience injustice. We will all experience persecution. This is told to us all throughout the New Testament. In John 15, Jesus tells his disciples about the persecution that they will experience because of him. It's the famous place where Jesus says, no one is greater than their master, so don't expect to not be hated by the world because the world hated me first. He also says in Luke 14, Jesus tells his disciples, he warns them to count the cost of following him. And this is what, this is what he says about counting the cost. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We don't often think about that when we think about following Jesus. We like the yoke part. We like the easy yoke. We don't like talking about bearing our cross. But Jesus also tells us in Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted and reviled for righteousness' sake and on his account. Jesus tells us to rejoice in our persecution. But even in that persecution, he promises to get us through it. He tells us that his yoke is easy, that his burden is light. Later on, God would tell Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. This is great news because despite being rejected by the world, Peter also tells us that we have a relentless enemy. David said his enemies are like a lion ready to tear his soul apart. Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, Jesus made all these promises about persecution, but I think it's important to, to pay attention to what these promises are referring to. These promises are directed towards persecution for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of righteousness. They do not apply to the suffering we experience because we've brought it on ourselves. We cannot go around being obnoxious or being a jerk and then when people act against us, claim persecution. That is not persecution. That's like someone jumping in front of a car to get an insurance settlement. It also does not apply to suffering we experience because of our own sin and brokenness. Now, there is always grace for our sin. But in this specific situation, these specific promises are made to our persecution because of Jesus' name, because of our life, because of our identity in Him. That's what these promises are talking about. There are other promises for our forgiveness, for our redemption, for the forgiveness and reconciliation from our sins. But 
this situation, we're talking about innocent, blameless persecution. And that's what David is claiming. David is going to go on and crying out to defend his innocence. But before we get into David's defense case, I want to make, I want to uh, explain a little bit the way Satan will use persecution in our lives. Anybody remember the story in 1 Kings where Elijah is on the mountain and he's battling the prophets of Baal? We remember that. Elijah ultimately calls fire down from heaven to prove that God is the only true God. And then he slaughters 450 prophets. It was a high point. High point. The last time we killed 450 people, that was like, we put that on our LinkedIn. Right? That's our high point. But directly after, directly after this huge victory for God, what does Elijah do? He gets scared. He, ru- he runs for his life, and he ends up in suicidal depression. Immediately after, you would think, right? We th- I think we all think this way. If I could just see a real miracle, if I could just see, if God would just speak to me and I could see him, hear him, if I could see him do a great sign, If I saw fire come down from heaven, I'd believe. The Bible doesn't teach that. Immediately after Elijah executes God's power on earth, Elijah calls God's power down on earth. He's running for his life. It was the same thing with Jesus after his baptism after the Holy Spirit comes down, after God declares to everybody there, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. I mean, they all heard God's voice. Right after that, you'd think, all right, cool. Like, we hit the ground, we're running. This is it, we're going. No, Jesus goes out into the desert. He's tempted by Satan. Jesus said the same thing to Peter. He said, you're... Be on guard because the spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. It is after our high points that we are um, at times the most vulnerable. Last week, we had Katie, officially named leader of women's ministry. Pray for her. She is stepping into obedience and stepping into God's call. And there's going to be times where Satan's going to try to bring her down. I can tell you from experience, and I'm sure Pastor Dexley could support this, that the times that I'm personally most vulnerable to attack, the most susceptible I am to indulging my sin, is after, on a weekly basis, after teaching at youth group, after preaching, so pray for, pray for Pastor Dexley when he preaches on Sunday. Pray for him Sunday night. Pray for him Monday and Tuesday. Because what happens? Our spiritual high makes us complacent. And Satan knows this better than we do. So pray for teachers. Pray for leaders. Pray for people who are actively serving God in whatever way that they're called to do. Pray for each other. Pray for Enoch or 
or Josh or Evan or Abby. This is why we work so hard to build a culture of community and of being together because we cannot support each other. We cannot be there for each other. We cannot pray for each other and know each other's weaknesses unless we know each other. So, verse 1, David declares God as his refuge. In verse 10, midway through the psalm, he says that God is his shield. And in verse 17, he's back praising and thanking God. So we see throughout the psalm, beginning, middle, and end, David is turning his attention to God. He's giving us a model and a picture that this is his ongoing, day-to-day life posture. That this is an all-the-time thing for him. A lot of times when we get, uh, we get beat down when life gets hard, Excuse me. We escape. And what do we escape in? We escape in substances. We escape in relationships. We escape in work and achievement. We escape in our schedules. When was the last time you talked to somebody said, hey, how you doing? They didn't say how busy they are. Amen. We're too busy. And maybe we're being busy to escape. We escape in our phones. When was the last time you realized, oh, an hour's gone by? Every night. I'm guilty of that. I can tell you how many times I've deleted YouTube. (laughs) And then then I download it again. But it's, what are we escaping in? Why are we escaping? It's not that it's bad to be on our phone. It's not bad to have hobbies or to be diligent at work. But we can use anything in life to escape, to distract ourselves, to do anything to substitute going to God. Maybe part of that escape is our response to injustice or persecution. David didn't do that. He didn't escape. He didn't run away. So David shows us responding to just responding to any hard thing, but specifically here, responding to injustice is best done in God's presence. He is our refuge. Psalm 46. God says, Be still and know that I am God. So that's how we respond to injustice is in front of and with God. Now we're going to go through and we're going to see God's justice through promise made for note takers. Verses 3 through 5, we're going to get into David's defense case. We see that he makes three if statements. Right? Psalms are are what kind of literature? Poetry. And what do we know about Hebrew poetry? We've talked about this in the past. It's not like our poetry. Our poetry rhymes with sounds, syllables, rhythm. 
Some, that's the acrostics. There's a few. Psalm 119 does that. Hebrew poetry rhymes with ideas and repetition. We just read 2 Samuel, uh, what was it, 18 or 19? David's lamenting over Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom, Absalom. How many, in, those, in that one and a half verses, how many times did he repeat himself? Right? In Hebrew literature, in Hebrew writing, in Hebrew expression, David is expressing the deepest form of emotion verbally. So David here is saying, he gives us three if statements, all saying the same thing. Right? He's not saying three different things. If I have done this, if there is wrong on my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil. Those are all three of the same thing. But the repetition that, they're, that he's using is giving a richer uh, expansion of the idea that he's trying to say. He's try, it's, it's strengthening what he's saying. It's like us saying really, really, really. Right? I'm really, really innocent. Right? We, have, we do have, now that I'm thinking of it, we have one example of how we try to do this. Right? We say, trust me. Trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. And we try by repetition to convince people to trust us. Now we kind of know that the more someone says, trust me, the more maybe he's not trustworthy. But the, but the idea of what they're trying to do still exists. So what David is doing here, he's not saying, hey, you know, I know I've, you know, I may have some parts to own in this, but I'm innocent. He's saying, no, I, in the strongest terms possible, he's claiming innocence. And he couples this with three challenge statements that pair with the first if statements. Right? I have just declared my true and total innocence. If that's not the case, then let them pursue my soul, trample my life, crush my glory. Right? And this is kind of the flip side of the same coin, saying, I'm willing to make this challenge. I'm willing to give permission to the fullest extent of repercussions because I'm that confident in my innocence. Skipping down to verse 8. David asks the Lord, judge me. He's saying, here's my case. Now he's looking directly at the judge. You judge me. Vindicate me according to my righteousness. Now what is he doing here? Because we don't claim our righteousness. Is he claiming that he's sinless? Is he claiming that he is faultless? That he is perfect? That his righteousness, in Jesus' words, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? No, David is doing something pretty astounding in terms of faith. How does God describe David? David is a man after God's own heart. But we know that that's not because he is the best example of what it means to follow God, right? David is pretty messed up. Right? We know that David was not sinless. But what David's doing here, he's drawing a line in the sand. He's making a, a distinction between himself as one who worships and follows God and those who don't. David is boldly making 
a claim on the promises that God has made about himself and about who he is. He is placing extraordinary faith in God's character as well as his nature. He is refuging, I'm making that a verb, right? Verse 1, in you do I take refuge. He's refuging in in God's justice itself. The justice of God is where he is seeking refuge. David understands that outside of God, there is no justice. True that. Jehovah is the source, the embodiment, the demonstration of what justice is. He created justice because he is justice. So, as a side note, as a point of apology... We talk a lot about human rights. We talk a lot about social justice. We talk a lot about a lot of morally implicated things, right? Having to do with universal morality. We have a lot of things that get talked about a lot in our culture. Does anyone know where those ideas came from? Where did the idea of the value of human life come from? From the Bible, from the mind of God. Just, where does social justice come from? Where does the idea of looking out for your neighbor, where does that come from? From the mind of God, from Scripture. Right? These are ideas that are being used in our culture in a way that does not acknowledge the source. Those are our ideas. Those are, those are Christian ideas. The first hospital, the uh, literacy, public schools. Those are all Christian initiatives. Those are all ways that people have lived out their faith for the betterment of society. So, it's not that those ideas are not valid when talked about outside of God, but they cannot be talked about in fullness. They cannot be talked about completely without acknowledging God and understanding where they came from and how they come to be. David says in verse 9 that it is God who is able to test the minds and hearts. Hearts indicating the inwardmost parts of us, our secret thoughts, our unknown intentions. God sees all of that. So he is the only one who has the right to judge. Verse 11, David calls God a righteous judge. That is not a concept that we have a worldly example to look at. But he also says that he feels indignation every day. What does that mean? This means that God sees everything. Nothing escapes his notice. Our God is a God who sees. In Exodus 3, I believe it's Exodus 3. End of Exodus 2. And God heard the groanings of the Hebrews, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and he knew. Our God sees. Have you suffered injustice? God sees. Have you been hurt by somebody or a group of somebodies? God sees. Not only does he see, 
but his indignation is constant. His anger towards that injustice is constant. His anger never fades. His zeal never wears off. See, we live in outrage culture. We can be intense. We can be intense. We can end relationships. We can invalidate other people. We can become violent. Only until we find the next thing to be outraged about. And then we don't even remember what we were mad about five minutes beforehand. That's not how God's indignation works. It never wears off. It never fades. And it's never disproportionate. This means that nobody goes unpunished and nobody gets away with anything. What does that look like? Verses 12 to 16 show the strength of God's wrath towards wickedness. It is a pretty dark picture for those who reject God. Let's read it again. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. But notice something, even within all this talk of weaponry and military might and action, with God sharpening his sword and bending his bow, what does David begin with? What is the beginning of verse 12 say? If a man does not repent, God's heart is always for repentance. He will always wait as long as he can to pass judgment. And praise God for that. That is the best news in the universe. If he hadn't waited with me, I wouldn't be here. And neither would you. Again, he's not, he's not letting anything slide. His patience does not mean that injustice goes on too long. But even at the apex of the tension, right? The bow is bent all the way back. The sword is in the air but he does not release. The sword doesn't fall. Because what happens right at, after he talks about the fiery shafts and bending his bow, behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. We have, I don't know if we have any, well, we have one scientist here, biologist, but we also have several medically trained personnel, which means you've had to take lots of science classes. Um, what's the rule of seeds? If you plant a seed, what comes from that seed? What you planted? Something different? After its own kind. It says that he's pregnant with mischief. An animal can only give birth to the thing, to the same kind of thing that it is. David is painting a picture here of the heart, the nature of the human heart. Then he says, he makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns on his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends.
It is his own wickedness and his own mischief that causes his destruction. Now, I know that this has so far been pretty heavy. We don't like to talk about judgment and punishment. Um, you know, we put signs in our windows and pithy sayings in our social bios because of things like this. We're uncomfortable with the idea of judgment and punishment because of the power implications behind it. We have seen too much abuse of power and authority, so we assume that power and authority itself is problematic. Especially, stay with me, when it comes to hell. We hate talking about hell. What this passage is telling us, though, is very, very important when it comes to the idea of eternal punishment. What this is saying... (laughs) At the end of the day, what this is telling us is that nobody goes to hell unwillingly. Nobody goes... Nobody goes to hell unwillingly. Nobody goes involuntarily. Nobody is forced into hell. In this passage, do we see that it is God who is striking down the unrepentant, wicked man? No, it's his own wickedness. Does this mean then that God is passive? And that even though he has the ability to strike down the wicked, He just waits for him to destroy himself? No. But to fully answer that question, what I would like to do, keeping this theme of court case, is we're going to back up and we're going to go back through this passage with a different witness on the stand. So this is our third point, God's justice through promise kept. Now, as I said before, nobody gets away with anything. How can that be true? How can it be when David and you and me and Pastor Dexley and Joe Biden and everybody else are (laughs) sinful people? Right? We're super messed up. How can it be true How can God truly be just and yet David claim to stand on his own righteousness being a sinful person? I'm so glad you asked. You guys ask the best questions. Vaughn just rolled her eyes at me. (laughs) Don't revere me. So, backing up, verses 3 through 5. We see David making the case for his own innocence. He's saying, if I am not innocent, then let all of this evil, all, let all of this violence be done against me. If I am not innocent, let me be torn apart. Now we know that David was not truly innocent. We've already talked about that. In the sense that he is perfect, in his own right, and made no no mistakes and committed no sin. But we do know of a person who was truly innocent, 
and yet was still torn apart. I lost my place. Yes, we do. <clears throat> so this is where our biblical theology comes in. Johnny, last summer, I think it was, gave us a class on biblical theology. But we know that the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, is pointing to something else. All of the Old Testament points forward. Right? Or more specifically, it points to someone. Jesus lived the perfect life. He was sinless. He was truly innocent. He could claim these three verses. But he didn't. He had no fault, he had no sin, and yet God the Father sacrificed him for our sake. In verse 8, David asks God to judge him according to his own righteousness. But we're told in the New Testament that we are given Jesus' righteousness. Hallelujah. We're not an amening church, but that deserves an amen. 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 Let's become one. Sue's been leading the charge for a long time. Y'all need to step up. We are given Jesus' righteousness. We put on his clothes. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. This is how God's indignation is satisfied. Because even though we don't see the sword fall in this psalm, God did let the sword fall, and it fell on Jesus. He let the arrows fly, and they hit Jesus. That's why when it comes to us, we can claim, we can stand on the promises of who God is because of the work that he has already done, of the promises that he has fulfilled through Jesus. We are all going to answer for our lives. The Bible tells us at the end, everyone who's ever lived will stand before God and answer for their life. Now, if you have suffered injustice and persecution, accountability will be held. People will answer for what they've done. However, that accountability will either fall on that person or it will have already fallen on Jesus. Yeah. And that is the best news in the universe because you know what? Each one of us has acted unjustly towards someone else. Each one of us stands on the other side of this psalm in verses 12 to 16. But no matter what situation you're in, whether or not you are the victim of injustice or you've committed injustice, the work of Jesus is complete and it is enough. Nothing that any of us has ever done can keep us from Jesus' righteousness unless we choose not. The sword fell on Jesus so that it did not have to fall on us. Now, when it comes to injustice, we kind of think of it as um, 
victim and perpetrator, right? Oppressor and oppressed. And that's true. But another thing we learn from the work of Jesus is, yes, he took our place. Yes, God's wrath was satisfied. But what about the real-life aspect of Jesus' death? Jesus experienced real slander. He experienced real persecution. He was falsely uh, falsely accused. He knows how Richard Phillips felt when he was sent to prison for not even, he wasn't even involved. He didn't even know the people involved for the crimes that he was convicted of. Jesus was lynched. Jesus had a farce trial and was hung and died for no reason. Jesus took our justice by experiencing injustice. But how did he respond? Did he say, get me through this? Did he say, it's okay, these people are going to get it. They'll get what they deserve later. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Mm. Us turkeys. Us miserable creeps, is that what it is? <clears throat> yeah. The death of Jesus saved us, but the way he died teaches us. We not, it may not feel very vindicating in the day-to-day when we're treated unfairly or maliciously, Praying, Father, forgive them. Praying for them the way Jesus tells us to in uh, Matthew, to pray for our enemies and to bless those who persecute us. We, we brush over that. No, thank you. Skip to the other parts. We go back to the yoke. We like the yoke. <laughs> I love that we're a church who laughs. We do not pray for our enemies. We do not understand that concept. But think about it. That is their only hope. And it was once our only hope. Jesus gave us the opportunity to avoid verses 12 to 16 because God kept His promise. Exodus 34. The Lord the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We don't like that part. We like the first part. We don't like the second part. But we cannot understand the love of God unless we understand the justice of God. Just like the mama bear, who is the most dangerous animal to encounter in the wild, she is putting herself in danger and fighting to protect her children because she loves her children, her cubs. Her justice is an outpouring of her love. Now, we don't like to talk about not clearing the guilty. We don't like to talk about visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. But we do. 
We do, but we don't. We don't like it in a general sense, but we really like it on a personal sense. When we're wronged, get them. Right? That's the second part. When we experience injustice, we want just we want vengeance. We don't want just we don't just want justice. We want vengeance. So, as much as we like to tell ourselves that we don't like the second part of who God is, we kind of do. We just don't like to admit it to ourselves. They'll get theirs. That's how we. That's how we make ourselves feel better. Someday it'll all even out, right? But Jesus, God cannot love if he is not just. So how do we respond to injustice? See, the more time we spend with God and looking at him and what Jesus has done, the more we understand in our soul who God is. Now, David builds up in this last part of the psalm. He brings in God as the righteous judge. He's talking about uh, his righteousness and he's a shield and now he's rising up and he's gathering his weapons and he's sharpening his sword. He's bent his bow. He's talking about the, the wicked man and all the consequences and bringing destruction on himself and then he stops. Verse 17 the final verse of the psalm. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. David shifts his heart. Well, let me, let me rephrase that. By spending time with God, in the presence of God, and meditating on his character, the Holy Spirit shifts David's heart posture to praise and gratitude towards God. We can't do that on our own. David's final words are naming Jehovah the Most High. The Most High is a title for God that we only see one time outside of the Psalms. And we see it in Genesis when Abram is talking to Melchizedek. But this is the first time that Jehovah and the Most High are put together. David is claiming this title for God. Little about me, I love comic books. I'm a little tired of the films, just I need a break. <clears throat> but I love the world of superheroes. I think I've talked about this before. One of the reasons is that there's no limits. It's a, it's a universe that is, can go on forever. It can keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Artists and writers, they can, um, the scope is endless. They can go cosmic, they can go ultra-cosmic, they can go interdimensional, there's no limits. You've got characters that can create entire realities and villains who can destroy or consume those realities. World Breaker Hulk uh, is one of my favorites. Look him up, it's pretty cool. <laughs> But there's one character called the one above all. Can you see where I'm going with this? Enoch's with me. Face rolling her eyes at me. <clears throat> the one above all. He holds ultimate authority 
over all of the other immensely powerful beings. Galactus, who literally eats worlds. Um, Franklin Richards, who can create realities. <clears throat> Time, everything is under the control and the authority of the one above all. And they actually do a really, really good job of trying from a human perspective to work out this idea of an all-powerful being. But still, that is just a dim child's crayon drawing example compared to what God is, to who God is, to what it means that God is the Most High. It means that evil cannot exist in His presence. Time serves Him. Death asks permission of Him. Job 38, after all of Job's suffering, after all the back and forth with his friends, God finally speaks up. And what does He say? Does He get down, put His arm around Job? Does He explain, well... You know, Satan challenged me, and you know, I thought we're up for it. You know, this is the reason why, this is what I wanted you to learn. This is how it's going to affect all these other people for the rest of history. Did he say they're there? You know, you did a great job. No. He's actually pretty stern with Job. He's ironic with Job, almost sarcastic with Job. Oh, surely. I mean, you were there when I created the world. The lightning obviously answers to you. You understand how the world works. That's God's response to Job. <laughs> what is God doing when he's responding to Job? Who he is? How much higher? How much more than? How much more above us that God is? He created everything. Everything exists and continues ex to exist because God decides to allow it. The laws of nature, which outside of God are probably the most confining and highest forces that we deal with, those were written and supported by Him. Those continue to exist and continue to be true because of Him. God could change the laws of nature right now to whatever He wants. He doesn't. They are constant because he is constant. The lightning asks where to go before it strikes because of who God is. At the burning bush, God tells Moses to take off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground. The same thing is told to Joshua when he meets the leader of the Lord's army. God tells Israel that no one can touch Mount Sinai where he dwelt or they would die. We talked about the name Jehovah earlier, but the Israelites would not even spell out his name fully because they believed that writing it down brought the highness of God to the physical realm and they could not justify that. It would be an insult to bring God's name to ink and paper. They had a reverence, and that's just his name. They had a reverence for God. This is the God we serve. Our God is big. 
Our God is dangerous, but our God is good. We have no problem with wedding Jesus, like we saw in John 2 a couple weeks ago. We love wedding Jesus. Party on. We love Jesus with the little children on his lap. But we also need to love Jesus at the end of chapter 2, where he's cleansing the temple, where he's making weapons and driving people out and being angry and violent and visceral. Think, think about it. Think about how much more God is, how much other, how much more above us He is. The more we understand this, the more we understand the distance between us and God and the distance He crossed to come here and to be with us, the more we look at Him and understand, the more it will start to soak into the crust of our heart and soul. And the more willingly and eagerly we will be to give Him everything. The Lord is the Most High, David says. There is none with Him or before Him or beside Him. It is just Jehovah. He is our refuge. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we understand what this means. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to let it sink in. Father, I pray for a reverence for who you are and let that affect how we act, how we behave, how we treat each other, how we treat you. In Jesus' name, amen.